Hi, friends, and welcome to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast, where we discuss Bible prophecy from a pre-tribulational, premillennial, expositional, and rapture-ready point of view. This is Joel Dover. I'm the former professor of eschatology and dean of biblical studies at Calvary Chapel University, a local pastor for more than two decades, and a student of God's Word. Grab your Bibles and let's dig deep. This is the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Pre-Trip Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover. I'm so excited to be back with you and, of course, to have you on the program today. Thank you for listening in, and we trust and pray this will be a wonderful time together as we look at God's Word. Last time we were together, we started the book of Daniel. It would be our intent during Season 2 to go all the way through Daniel verse by verse, passage by passage, And then as we get into season three, maybe three and four, depending on the length, we'll get into the book of Revelation. What we want to do, of course, in Daniel is to lay a foundation, to lay a framework, and to understand really uh, a bigger picture, like a 10,000-foot picture of what the Lord says will happen in days to come. And we'll be looking at certain things such as the rise of kingdoms. We've discussed this briefly in season one, but we'll get deeper into it here in season two, the rise of kingdoms, including the rise of the last day's kingdom, which will be led by Antichrist. And so if you'll grab your copy of God's word, we'll begin in Daniel chapter one and verse one. And in today's teaching, we're going to see an introduction to the man Daniel and learn about his coming into uh, Babylon and the events surrounding the circumstances that brought him into this position where God would use him so, so greatly as a uh, man of prophecy and a man who interpreted dreams and visions. And so why don't we jump in in Daniel chapter one. In verse 1 and verse 2, the Bible reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Why don't we stop right there and just kind of work through that, because there are some wonderful things that include timestamps to help us understand when these things are taking place. For example, in chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible tells us that these things that we're beginning to read about in the book of Daniel took place during the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim, of course, is a king in the southern kingdom of Israel, that is in what we would call Judah. You'll recall that Israel has already been conquered by the Assyrians, the northern ten tribes carried off into captivity 150 years or so before what we're reading here, but now we're in the latter days of the nation of Judah. Now, Jehoiakim was not the final king. He reigned for about 10 years, and the Bible says in his third year, that's when Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon and conquered Jerusalem, conquered Judah, but Jehoiakim was allowed to remain as a proxy king for a while. When he was deposed, another king ruled for about three months, and then after him, another proxy king in Judah for another 10 years. So the things that we're reading about with the conquest of Judah really took place over a period of about 17 to 20 years. And here we're seeing the beginning of it. We find that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's the conqueror, and he comes in, of course, uh, and uh, ransacks, or at least conquers at first, and then later, after a series of rebellions, ransacks Jerusalem, the city itself, and eventually the temple. The Bible says he is from Babylon. You may be familiar with that that name. It's a very common place in the Bible. It's mentioned often from uh, the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. 
For example, you may remember in the book of Genesis, the rise of the first world dictator by the name of Nimrod, who acted in disobedience to the Lord at a place called Babel, built a walled settlement there, built a tower to reach into the heavens. And of course, this is the place where the Lord confused the languages of the world and then scattered them into other places, accomplishing his will that the earth may be populated. By the time we get to the days of Daniel, of course, Babylon is at the height of its prominence. It is the world power. The Daniel chapter 4 says the city was exceedingly great. And of course, uh, at the end of the book, if you fast forward to Revelation, we still see Babylon being mentioned, but in a spiritual way. When we take the qualities of uh, literal Babylon, uh, qualities of um, rebelliousness and idolatry, of wickedness, these kind of things, these are applied spiritually. It's disobedience, it's opposition to the Lord, it's confusion. These things are applied spiritually to the last day's kingdom, the kingdom of Antichrist. We'll get there in season uh, three. Well, it's interesting. The Bible says here in Daniel chapter one that the Lord gave Jerusalem into his hand. Uh, that is into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, the king of Babylon. I want to just reference you back to 1 Kings chapter 9. And this is the account in the scripture of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Just a beautiful passage where as Solomon is um, dedicating the temple to the Lord, God speaks to him and basically tells him, if I can paraphrase, as long as you're faithful to me and don't chase after other gods, you will always have the temple. There'll always be a ruler on the throne. Israel will last forever and ever. But now, as we see in Daniel chapter 1, God has allowed Judah to be conquered. Following in the footsteps of Israel, we we come to the conclusion uh, through the scripture, reading Chronicles and Kings and these books, and of course, understanding the history of the people that they have drifted. And there has been rampant idolatry, and they have worshipped on the high places. You know, in Judah, there were seasons of revival, but just as many seasons of rebellion. There are times when we find the temple in Jerusalem in great disrepair, being used as uh, you know storage units. Even occasions where the temple in Jerusalem, God's God's house, was being used for the worship of pagan idols, including and up to um, pagan prostitution there in the place. So, just a, a tremendous idolatry in the nation. And God does exactly what He says He will do. He sends Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign invader, to come and to destroy that place, to conquer, and eventually to destroy the house of the Lord. So God, listen, it was an act of God. God gave Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, one thing that we learn in the Bible is that there are occasions where the Lord uses his enemies to chastise his people. But we know that his intent always, his ultimate goal is repentance, obedience, and fidelity. The Bible says that when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he did something very interesting. He carried away some of the artifacts, some of the articles of the house of God, verse 2, into the land of Shinar. Shinar is just another name for Babylon. And he put them in the house of his God and brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Such an interesting thing. In the, nat- in the ancient Near East, when an army would come in and conquer another army, many times they credited their victories to their own gods. And to demonstrate the superiority of their gods over those of their, uh, you know, conquered neighbors, they would often take some of the fancy things from the temples and uh, ziggurats and such of their neighbors, bring them into the temples of their own gods. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Verse 2, he brings the articles from the house of the Lord into uh, the house of his own God, which we believe to be uh, the Babylonian god Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar and one of his wives, a princess of Media, 
uh, had a son, which they named after the god Marduk, and that's a pretty good clue as to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's worship practices, not to mention that Marduk was the principal deity of Babylon. Okay, so uh, I want to just reference you back, if you're taking notes, I want to reference you back to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 4, because we've seen this practice before in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 5, the Philistines defeated Israel, and they took the Ark of the Covenant and set it in the house of uh, their god, Dagon. Do you remember this? And then you'll remember the story. The next morning, they come in, and Dagon is, has fallen down before the Ark, like in a kneeling posture. They set him back on his pedestal. The day after that, they come in. He's fallen again, but this time, both his head and the palms of both hands are broken off, so it's just his torso there. And this starts this whole thing with um, plagues that break out among the Philistines, and eventually, of course, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart pulled by two cows, and they send that thing back in with a peace offering uh, of golden rats and golden tumors. They send that back into Israel, where it is uh, recaptured by the people. Now, here we are in Daniel 1. We're seeing the same kind of practice where Nebuchadnezzar brings these articles into the house of his uh, his god, certainly uh, Marduk. Okay, why don't we uh, continue in verse 3, and we find in verse 3, and we'll go all the way through verse 7, that it wasn't just the articles from the house of God that were brought back into Babylon. The Bible says, Then the king instructed Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, professing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among them, of those of the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now we know these young boys, but friends, you probably know them more familiarly by their Babylonian names. Verse 7, to them the chief of the eunuch gave names. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now there's another clue in that name about uh, the worship in Babylon and about Nebuchadnezzar's worship. Nebo was the father of Marduk in their, uh, you know, Babylonian god system. Okay. So these young boys now are brought from uh, Israel, they're brought from Judah into Babylon, and they're put in the care of Asphanaz, who is the master of the eunuchs. He is taking care of these boys. There is a cultural um, uh, program put in place, like a reculturalization program. And the whole point is to take the choices, some of the nobles, the kids of the nobles, some of the descendants of royalty, the finest young people that Judah had to offer, to bring them into uh, Babylon and to put them through a reculturalization program to see if we could strip them from their Hebrew roots and turn them into good, you know, uh, Chaldeans over here, turn them into Babylonians. And they, of course, would eventually, after some point of learning, uh, gaining wisdom, gaining insight, they would take on some position of service in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, it's very clear that the boys that were selected, they had to meet some criteria. For example, the Bible says here that Daniel and his friends were without blemish and that they were good looking. And so they had a particular physical appearance. The Bible also says they were gifted in all wisdom. Now, this is another way, I think, of saying that they were bright, they were sharp, uh, they were uh, intelligent young people, they carried themselves well. 
The Bible says they also possessed knowledge and they were quick to understand, again, pointing to their intellectual capabilities. They had ability, according to the Bible, to serve in the king's palace. They were capable or able of learning the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the Bible specifically says that these were the best and the brightest of the young men of Israel. In other words, these boys were the cream of the crop. Now, when they came in, they sat under Asphanaz's oversight. He was put in charge of the reculturalization program. And the Bible tells us that the program was three years in length. And that during that time, they were, man, they were really treated to all of the king's wine and his delicacies. They were given a daily provision. And of course, the intent of that program was to make them just as handsome and as smart and as useful as possible so that they could serve the interests of the king. Now, I want to meet these boys. We find their names here in verse 7. We know them in the Hebrew as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But then their Chaldean names are Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are uh, maybe, at least for these three, uh, the three latter, these are the more familiar names because we so often refer to them by these names after they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Okay. Now, in the Hebrew, the name Daniel means God is my judge. But when he was given a Chaldean name, the Chaldean means whom Bel favors. Now, I don't want you to be confused about this. Marduk, the Chaldean god, was also known by the name Bel, B-E-L. And then later, that would be elongated to the word Baal. And so when we read about Baal worship in the scripture, often we're we're speaking of worship of the Chaldean god Marduk that, uh, of course, was uh, the God of Nebuchadnezzar here. So uh, interesting, the name change, God is my judge to whom Bel favors. Hananiah or Shadrach, his name, his Hebrew name means God is favored. His Chaldean name means royal. Mishael or Meshach, the Hebrew name is who is what God is. And then the new name, the Chaldean name is guest of the king. And then Azariah or Abednego, uh, Azariah in the Hebrew is Jehovah has helped uh, Abednego in the Chaldean is the servant of Nebo. Nebo, again, being the father of the Babylonian god Marduk. So here's my point, friends. In taking these young people from their Hebrew roots and bringing them into the nation, there's even right down to the changing of their names, reassigning how they're addressed, reassigning how they're called, what their names mean. There is a reculturalization taking place to try to make these young boys thoroughly Chaldean and to strip away from them all of their uh, Hebrewishness if they can, to take away their devotion to Jehovah God, to reculturalize them into the Babylonian religion. And friends, that's what makes verse 8 so significant, because as all of this is happening to Daniel against his will, it's not like he got to choose whether he came into uh, Babylon or not. No, he was taken. And as all of this is happening, and he's been given a new name and new living quarters, and these provisions are being made, Daniel is somewhat defiant, not in a um, an unhealthy way, but in a very spiritually healthy way. And we read about this in verse 8. The Bible says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Okay, so Daniel decides in his heart that he wants to live for Jehovah God. He wants to honor God, even if Everything on the outside is changing. And friends, I want you to realize things can be changing rapidly on the outside. You can be subjected to uh, choices, decisions, circumstances that are not of your own making. But no one 
has control over the affinities of your hearts except you. And so Daniel says, hey, I'm going to honor God in my heart. Uh, his name was changed to whom Bell favors, right? But his heart was loyal to the Lord God, Jehovah. Now, in some way, and we don't really know exactly why, it's not just because this was meat and wine. Certainly, other places in the scripture, we see people who are loyal to Jehovah eating meat and drinking wine. But there's something about this that in Daniel's heart was a, a conflict. Daniel believed that, look, if I take the luxuries from the king, that I'll be defiled in some way in my relationship with God. And he didn't want to be polluted. He didn't want his walk with Jehovah God to be desecrated or to be soiled. Now, we don't really know what it was. It could be, of course, you know, we could speculate about a lot of these things. Could be that the meat had been sacrificed to a pagan idol. We don't know. Could be that uh, it wasn't just wine that was given, but intoxication was expected. I don't know. Excesses. Uh, we just don't know. But whatever the motivation, Daniel clearly wants to honor God. And in his own mind, in his own heart, taking the delicacies of the king would be a compromise of his walk uh, with Jehovah God. And so in verse 9 to 16, Daniel proposes an alternative diet. The Bible says, beginning in verse 9, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So Daniel now proposes an alternative diet. And what we see is that God has great favor on Daniel in this situation. And God was at work to make Daniel stand out and his friends stand out. So there's favor with the chief of the eunuchs. Uh, Aspenaz, of course, is concerned that, look, if you don't eat the king's delicacies, if you're not eating the best of the food and the best of the drink of the land, you won't look as good or as healthy as the other boys who may be, you know, are in the program. So he was really concerned about getting in trouble with the king. Daniel's solution is, look, why don't we try it for 10 days? For 10 days, just give us vegetables and water. We won't eat the delicate meats. We won't drink the wine, just vegetables and water. And then you can compare us with the other boys and see how does our complexion look? How's our stature? How are we faring? And so they did. At the end of the 10 days, the Bible indicates that their appearance was better. And so there in verse 16, it's interesting. The steward took away all the portion of the delicacies from all of those other folks. And now they all are on this vegetarian diet of Daniel. They're, they're all on the Daniel diet. Uh, the Bible doesn't say how the rest of them felt about that, but it accomplished, it accomplished the king's purposes. And Daniel now is shown favor so that he does not have to defile himself before his God. Now look at verse 17. We see here in verse 17 that God begins to have his hand mightily. We know that the Lord was with these boys from the beginning, but now his hand is mightily on Daniel and on these four young men. Verse 17 says, As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel, now we speak specifically of Daniel, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And so we see that these boys are growing. They are standing out. They're the choicest of the choicest. Their wisdom is growing. Their understanding of literature is growing. 
But God has a special plan for Daniel. Now, all of these boys are important and special to the Lord, but the Bible specifically says here that Daniel was given by the Lord understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, friends, as we start to wrap up chapter one here, again, this is a foundational chapter helping us to understand how Daniel comes into Babylon, how he's in position to give these prophecies, how he's in position to interpret the king's dreams. And the scripture tells us now in verse 17 that God begins to move. God is moving in his spirit in Daniel so that, listen, Daniel's going to be prepared because of his walk with God to do the will of God here among people who uh, God wants to speak to in this particular way, shape, and form. All right, verse 18, and we'll go through the rest of the chapter here. We find that their three-year training program comes to a completion. The Bible reads, now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus." Let's work through that very quickly. The Bible says that the three-year reculturalization program has come to an end. So friends, realize that Daniel 1 does what many Bible texts do. It covers a fairly significant amount of time here. I mean, a number of years now have gone by that are all kind of recorded here in an overview glance in chapter 1. And these boys now, at the end of the three years, they're presented before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar interviews them one by one. He wants to know, you know, who's he got? What's he got to work with here? The scripture says, of all the ones who had come to Babylon, that none of them stood out like Daniel and his three friends. Again, they were the cream of the cream of the crop, all right? And in verse 20, there's a, a really specific statement here that helps us to understand how much they stood head and shoulders above the rest. The Bible says that they were 10 times better, not just you know better than the other boys in the program, but 10 times better than the magicians and the astrologers in his realm. Now, friends, we want to read in. We read into this just a bit. It probably is reading in, so let's not get too carried away with this. But this really could be an indication as to what some of their training might have been like. We know that they were studying the wisdom and the literature of the Chaldeans it seems that now they're being compared with astrologers and magicians from uh, the Chaldean land. And of course, they were widely known for their uh, astrology and for their magic. And so it may very well be that among the things that they studied were things like dream interpretation and astrology and movements of the stars and interpretations of those kind of things. The Bible doesn't specifically say, but this at least seems like a hint. And to give a, a little deeper probability to that, the original language here in the Bible uses an Egyptian word and an Akkadian word. And the idea of both together seems to say that these guys were um, trained as interpreters of dreams and uh, perhaps were taught certain religious rituals. All that aside, what I want to point, point out to you is verse 21, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And what I'd really like to say to you is, listen, God is moving in the lives of Daniel and in his friends 
And they may have studied things like uh, incantations and rituals and dream interpretations. But listen, what they'd learned from the Chaldeans was a bottom-up approach. They'd learned from the wisdom that their men had written down, how to interpret. Like It's like if someone goes down to the bookstore and buys a book on dream interpretation. That's a bottom-up approach, and I would discourage you from doing that. I'm not endorsing that at all, friends. But that's a bottom-up approach where someone tries to learn from the wisdom of man and interpret something higher. In Daniel's experience, it's top-down. God begins to move in the Spirit in a mighty way on Daniel so that he exceeds, just exceeds far beyond what these men uh, and boys could learn from the bottom up. So the Hebrew lads now have the wisdom of God who is active in their lives to provide wisdom and understanding. Now, verse 21, the Bible gives us another timestamp, and I want you to see how significant the ministry of Daniel was. Because the Bible says that Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus. That is, listen, uh, until the first year that Cyrus reigned over Babylon. Now, we know that date. That was October of 539 B.C. And we also know when Daniel came over. Because if you'll remember, in verse 1 and verse 2, we learned that Daniel was brought into Babylon during the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which was in 598 B.C. So you subtract these two dates. We're talking about a 59-year period of service between the time when Daniel was exported to Babylon and the beginning of the reign of Cyrus. He served in the beginning of the reign of Cyrus's court. So a tremendously long ministry, and God used Daniel in a mighty tremendous way in Babylon. Okay, that brings us to the end of the chapter. That's as far as we're going to go. Next week, we'll get into chapter 2. Again, all that we've done this week is to begin to lay some groundwork. Now we understand how Daniel came to be in Babylon, why he's in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, how he's going to get there to begin interpreting dreams, how God is moving in him to raise him up already as a young man, cream of the cream of the crop over all the other young boys, and specifically to give him wisdom, knowledge, and insight of the Holy Spirit that, frankly, is far greater than what anyone could ever teach. Friends, there's a difference between learning and what's imparted spiritually from the Lord. Daniel is going to be operating in the Spirit of God, top down, God moving upon him to accomplish his divine purposes and to speak forth his divine word. Uh, And until next time, I hope that this would be a tremendous encouragement to you. Look forward to this study. It's going to be a great study as we go verse by verse. And of course, we'll get deeper into some of the prophetic things. But I want to ask you, is there someone in your life that you can share the podcast with? Maybe there's a pastor in your life or an associate pastor at your church who would enjoy listening to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Perhaps a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, maybe a family member or a coworker. I wonder if you'd help us to get the word out. Maybe you'd share it on your social media pages or tell someone about the uh, broadcast and encourage them to come and take a listen and see if they would be blessed by this kind of teaching. As always, I'd like to encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. That way, every time we put new content out, you can be updated and your device, maybe you can set it up so it'll automatically download to your device and there'll be no waiting for you. We're so excited to have you on the program. Thank you again for listening and we pray that the Lord will bless you richly this week. We'll see you again next Wednesday as we look at Daniel chapter two and continue season two of the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. God bless you. 